Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young boy? I don't know. I, I think the sports brands have always been fantastic. Adidas and Nike, obviously extremely impressive. From an ad perspective, I actually, I think it's Bud's WhatsApp or the WhatsApp. That was, yeah. you know, we live in a world right now where brands have to have purpose, this create big creative idea. Everything needs to be connected in an ecosystem. Going back 15, 20, 25 years, and watching these extremely stupid marketing ideas that were just there for entertainment. Like when you ask someone like, what was the idea? What was the big insight? What would, nothing, it was just there. And that, that had an impact, just like that, that stupidity, the, the shallow marketing stupidity, I like that. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show... I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is David Sandstrom, the chief marketing officer of Klarna, the fintech company founded in Sweden in 2005. Klarna offers products and services to consumers and retailers in payments, things like buy now, pay later, social shopping, and personal finance. You may remember Klarna from their hilarious ad in the 2021 Super Bowl with Maya Rudolph in a Wild West town. In 17 short years, Klarna has become Europe's highest valued private fintech company with an estimated valuation of about $45 billion. Klarna has 100 million active users, 250,000 merchants on its platform, and processes about 2 million transactions a day. And if you are wondering about the name, Klarna means clear in Swedish. My guest David has been CMO since 2017, overseeing a period of phenomenal growth, which we will talk lots about. This is my conversation with a guy who does not have a lot of love for the traditional banking and credit card industry, David Sandstrom. David, welcome to the CMO Podcast. We are recording this episode toward the end of, end of winter. You live in Stockholm. You have a long, wonderful winter. So I want to start with what are your favorite activities in Sweden to get you through your long winter? Going abroad, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, but jokes aside, I mean, I have two small kids. They're three and five years old. Um, 
we go skiing, stuff like that. I actually think winter is kind of nice here in Sweden. It's yeah. just it's the it's the period in between where it's rainy and cold. That's the that's the horrendous part, and it's it's dark all the time. I have like four hours of sunlight. Well, it's good for other activities, right? Reading, walking, listening to podcasts. <laughs> exactly. If the glass is half full, it's good for other activities. Yeah, that's right. All right, very good. So, listen, let's stay with Sweden for a bit before jumping into your story. I want to ask you, besides Klarna, what is your favorite Swedish-based brand or company? I actually think Volvo has done a very good job of, you know, you can obviously mention IKEA and H&M, but, but Volvo to me has done a good job from, you know, reinventing themselves, the marketing part, uh, they, they have a really, they have a couple of really nice core values. Um, it's, it's a product that I personally love as well. It's a, it's, it has a nice craft, you know, it's, it's Swedish in, in a nice way. There's obviously, again, it's Ikea, it's H&M, it's Spotify yeah, as well, right? Spotify, our, our tech yeah. pals. But, but I do think Volvo stands out to me at least. Well, you know, I come from P&G, as you know, and I think Electrolux is amazing. Yeah. We, we have a washer and dryer, uh, and it's just stands so far above the others. It's just, a, it's a, you know, I like doing laundry. I have to admit that. But, <laughs> but especially with the elect- Electrolux machines, they're just marvelous. So listen, let's uh, let's let's talk about you now. Your your career path. I want to start with that. The career path mm-hmm. that has led you to Klarna. You went to university in Stockholm at the School of Economics a few years back, and then you went into the media and ad business for about a decade. So I'd like to know why you made that choice coming out of school to spend a significant part of your career in advertising and media. Um. Let's start in a different end. Everyone who goes to Stockholm School of Economics, at least during my time, wanted to become a banker, right? The, the, it was the generation of Gordon Geckos. Yeah. Um, so everyone wanted to go, because we're European, to London, work for Goldman Sachs or something like that. And I was like that during the first two years as well. I was really, you know, I, I dressed up in a suit, although I was like 21 and clueless or 22 and clueless, right? <laughs> no reason to dress up in a suit whatsoever. And, and I did all of that for two years and I just hated it. Like from, from the bottom of my heart, I hated it. Working in Excel, only thinking about money, only thinking about, you know, gains and revenue and arbitrage and stuff like that. Nothing human or emotional about it. it wasn't inspiring to me. So I got really interested. David, I want to stop there for a moment. When did you have that moment of self-awareness? I don't know. I, I don't think, I don't believe in this eureka, in these eureka moments. I don't believe in them when it comes to creativity. I don't think it was like this. It was probably just a night of another, you know, another takeaway night, um, sitting there with a the pizza, way too late working on stuff that you weren't passionate about. Like, what the hell am I doing? Mm-hmm. And then I, I really asked myself, what do I like? Uh, what am I passionate about? And I am truly passionate about consumer behavior. I actually don't like advertising very much. Like advertising is one of many, many tools to create a shift in consumer behavior, right? So I started to study consumer behavior. Um, and that is how I got into media, like into insights, into like into brands as well. Like I, I'm not passionate about brands. I'm just truly interested in why people walk into a McDonald's instead of a Burger King when they next door to each other. Because the burger tastes the same, part part of my French, like mm-hmm. but but still the burgers taste the same. Why does someone pick up a Coke over a Pepsi when it tastes the same? Like th- those are the kind of things that really interest me. So the first couple of years in media, I actually studied consumer behavior and media behavior and like how to influence someone 
Um, because to me, marketing is basically commercially driven psychology. And that is something I was in, extremely inspired by. And, and that is something I'm still inspired by. If I look at what I'm doing on a daily basis and what Klarna is doing, like sparking a global shift in consumer behavior and marketing as, as a tool for that. So that is how I got into it and why I spent so much time with it and still continue to spend time on topics like how does pop cultural affect people? How does marketing affect people? What role do brands play in people's lives? How do people identify with the brands and how do they, does that affect personality and you know all of that self-awareness self-worth in some strange instances i'm not this typical ad guy i actually don't like ads whatsoever uh, i like marketing a lot i like psychology and consumer behavior a lot oh you did you did a pretty good ad for the super bowl last year i must say yeah the maya Rudolph i'm happy ad. to hear that yeah yeah, I'm yeah happy i, th to I hear thought that. it broke through i thought it was charming and i thought it told your story right yeah exactly and uh, i mean it's harder than what you would think to, you know, tell the story about payments and deferred payments, right? Something else, Nike dropping a new shoe or, you know, I, I don't know, Doritos having a new flavor. Yeah. Like there's some cultural intensity and ease to that. A deferred payment isn't something that people, you know, that they don't come running to see that ad. Yeah, we'll get into that in a few minutes. Sticking with your career, you, you discovered you really enjoy consumer behavior and the curiosity of it and understanding motivations. You stayed in that business for 10 years. How did that shape you as a leader? You came out a young kid out of school. It was a very developmental time in your life. So how were you a different leader coming out of that 10 years in the ad and media business? Probably in any, in any way possible right? I'm not sure how it has shaped me, to be honest. I think, you know, I've always had this, you know, um, naiveness to my leadership, like j just being me might be enough. I, I'm not a big reader of these m management books. I think it's hard to force a leadership that you've read somewhere on yourself, right? You know, d doing something that is goes against who you are as a person, Maybe I've been lucky to be a leader at heart and have just rolled with those punches, right? Um, or maybe I've developed more than I, 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 I know about, right? But, but I do think those 10 years have been extremely interesting to me. Partly, I was pretty lucky because I do think so much has happened around marketing, advertising, media, going from something that was fairly peripheral, like at least here in Europe, I would say like that was something the marketing department over there, right? They don't know about business. They don't really, you know, drive the real KPIs or business value. Let them do some funny ads over here and let the men in suits take care of the business, right? During my 10 times that actually shifted fundamentally, putting marketing, brands, positioning, you know, all of that almost into the epicenter of, of how business is being run. Um, also just looking at the, the costs connected to marketing, digital marketing nowadays, like the, the measurability, the sizes, all of that. So I was pretty lucky as well going from something that very few had studied into something that, you know, became very central and very, you know, a, a cornerstone to many companies. Why do you think that shift happened, David, where marketing became a cornerstone of so many enterprises? A couple of things like one thing that I'm still, people don't like me for saying this, but, but I do think that every product out there or 99.9% .9 of all products out there 
have an alternative to them. Many of them have many alternatives connected to them. And the time to copy a fantastic product nowadays is, you know, sub four weeks. There are very few moats that companies have, like you have distribution and you have brand. Like that, that is basically like probably a couple of other things, right? But when it comes to most products, especially DTC products that are being launched, you know, on a minutely basis nowadays, a DTC mm -hmm. product, right? There is an alternative that is equal or superior to yours. And you don't have many tools in order to combat that. Uh, you obviously you have distribution, you have logistics, you have pricing to some extent, all the old ones, but then there's brand, right? And I do think that the pace at which you know innovation happens at which products are being copied and you know refined is faster than ever so you need that dimension to your company in order to stay competitive we've all been there you spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped on top of that 81 percent of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge so what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. You're in your fifth year as CMO at Klarna, and few of my guests on this podcast have overseen the growth that you have overseen in these five years. So, David, I'd love you to step back from these five years and talk about how you did that with your team. What were the building blocks? What was the playbook for this remarkable growth story, really, of 17 years, but especially the last five? I mean, I don't have the playbook. Like people ask me, like if I like some people, if I'm being invited to conferences and stuff like that, and I stand on stage, and it feels like people have paid a lot of money to to hear me talk about the yeah. holy grail, as if I had all the answers. Right? I don't. I might not even be good at marketing in general. I might be good at marketing Klarna. Like no one knows, mm, right? Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. might be my super skill, and that's yeah. fairly niche. So, so I don't want to get on a too high horse and say, you know, I, I know all of this or I know all of that, but. I do think, and it's very cheesy to talk about bravery, but, but I have been very blessed as well to have obviously a fundamentally fantastic product at its core. Uh, I've been lucky with the uh, macro shift that is happening in the world where people are sick and tired of being ripped off by credit card companies and financial institutions looking for an alternative. But then I'm also lucky with the fact that we operate in an industry that is uh, almost universally hated. Uh, the financial industry is, uh, you know, you see all of these trust barometers and trust, you know, mm -hmm. uh, rankings coming out e each year. And I don't know if I should cry or laugh, but I do like bankers and ad execs are always <laughs> at the yeah, absolute are. bottom of that. Yeah. And, and I'm probably that combination, right? So a lot of my strategy has been not to be like them. A lot of the playbook is around, okay, let's pretend we're not a bank. Let's pretend that we live on the same planet as consumers. Let's talk, you know, with them instead of to them. Like, let's, you know, behave as if we want to be around for 100 years. You know, th those kind of things. Um, let's behave as if we wanted to be our own customers, right? So the playbook is 
don't be like everyone else. People usually ask me like, Klarna, the pink, is that because you want to, you know, because you want to have a female profile to what you do? It's not like the, the extremely uncomplicated strategy behind pink is that it's not blue. Mm-hmm. That's the thing, right? Every single financial institution yeah. is blue. The, that, that strategy is not blue. Like if you ask me about my strategy, I do the exact opposite as the banks because they failed. Everyone knows that they're failing. They clinch onto old business models. With that said, when I talk about it, it sounds very simplistic. In order to do it, that takes courage. It takes a leader as our CEO, Sebastian, who is fearless when it comes to that. You know, it takes all of those things. Talking about it is easy. Like the banks have access to the exact same data as I do. They know they're distrusted, right? It's not that you sit down with a CMO at a big bank saying, hey guys, did you know? Did you know that people don't trust you? That they're not going to be shocked. Like everyone has access to the same data. It is about zigging when others zag. It's hard in practice. We could have been in a spot where this could have been a miserable failure, right? I wouldn't have been invited to your podcast. I wouldn't have been invited mm-hmm. on stage. Like so, it's always easy to talk about once you've succeeded. We haven't succeeded yet, so don't get me wrong. But right, we're seeing traction for our strategy. At least let me put it that way. It's easier to you know talk about this and listen to what I have to say now that that we're fairly successful, right? But but that has been the that has been the growth strategy for us. And then I also think like I've I've been quite interested in, in marketing literature and growth literature. You know, I always think that also like someone has cracked this somewhere. Like if you read how brands grow, like if you just read that book, mm-hmm. they've studied it, right? They, yeah. They've done it. They've studied it with hundreds of thousands of companies, not like four companies, hundreds of thousands. And when I was a consultant at DDB, I always asked myself, like, why don't CMOs try to follow that playbook? And, and that to me, like, we're, we're just following those kind of basic, basic examples as well. And everything from our, you know, media choices to um, how we message, how we try to grow, how we, how we grow for reach instead of, I wouldn't say loyalty because that is important as well, but those kind of fundamental things. When you say that you're following the simple things, the principles in How Brands Grow, Byron Sharp's book, can you talk a bit more about that, David? What sorts of things do you look at? It sounds like you're, you strip away the frills and you get to the really basic stuff. So could you talk a little bit more about that yeah i mean again it's it's almost too boring to talk about because it's very basic right but but um i do think that great brands need to reach a lot of people um not everyone is in the market for our products at the same time uh, or all the time right um great brands need to be known even by the people who don't buy them right if you look at like what makes porsche or you know royce royce for example mm-hmm. like successful is that the people who don't afford it know know the brand as well as the people who can't afford it. Going for that reach, going for that mass appeal. And I do think we have very modern ways of looking at that. Like we know for a fact that Google search data correlates very well with market share and growth, right? How much people search for a brand that correlates with your growth. And we follow those kind of things. And that is why we're going for mass. We don't go for reach. We also have a strategy of investing disproportionately much in specific channels, right? Because we work with so many media agencies that try to figure out the exact spending we should have. Like, what if we triple that spending? Like, if we just 
emotionally blow up a channel like Twitter or something else, right? If we're just disproportionately big in our spending. So there are a lot of those kind of strategies that we apply when we, when we look at our marketing. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I know for sure. As you look at the last five years, a lot of things have gone well, obviously, because you've grown. Is there anything that hasn't gone well or any big surprises on this path? I mean, in hindsight, I would like to change every single thing we've done. Like, and I think that um, that is a trait I both like and dislike with myself, mm-hmm. right? Um, when we do retros for the teams, they want to celebrate. I want to celebrate as well because deep down inside, I, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a fun and happy person, right? But uh, there's so much to learn in every single thing we've done. Even in the biggest successes, they're like, why didn't we do this? Why didn't we do that? I think one thing that has been interesting is because I'm, I'm in an industry of money and money is very local, right? It's not, it's, it's not even national or regional. It's very local historically, at least like you, you went to, to your bank in, in your city center, right? Um, and just the cultural differences that you see between the US, Germany, the Nordics, now that we're going into Japan, Mexico, things like that, that to me has been a big surprise, but just the balance. How do you balance a local brand versus global brand and, and the difficult that comes with? So if you ask me, like, what is a big revelation to you? Um, you said you were from PNG, uh, or you, you used to be at PNG. When I was younger and more naive and didn't have this insight, I was always baffled by why their advertising looked so enormously bland. Like, why is it so bland? And now I understand. Like, if you go for a truly global brand, you know, it is really hard to find, you know, create cutting edge advertising that resonates and makes sense, right? I look at, you know, the sponsorships of the Olympics or the World Cups, and I'm always like, wow, is this the best stuff they could come up with? But now I do have a deep respect for brands that try to resonate globally. It's just so hard. And that keeps me awake at night. I, it's only a job, right? I don't stay awake at night. I sleep well, but could keep me awake at night. How do you think about that at Klarna? Global, regional, local? I mean, it's a, it's a tension for anyone who manages any brand. You know, We'll be figuring this out forever. My current view, and it changes on a, not on a weekly basis, but, but on a yearly basis at least. But my current thinking is it depends on where you are as a company. We are in a hyper growth phase. If we in a hyper growth phase try to be very tailored to each market at the same time, we're going to pay a dire price for that, you know, because the growth just expands and multiplies all the mistakes we do, right? So in a hyper growth phase, I think that you should try to be as centralized and global as possible. I might be wrong here. This is one man's opinion, so so don't take this the wrong way. Whilst if you're a big and established company and you need to reinvent yourself or you need to, you know, find new energy in your brand, in your customer relation, I do think, you know, creating as you know, the, the sport brands have done, if you look at Adidas and their strategy where they've created a strategy for each of the big cities in the world. Yeah, it's because they're a huge and established brand. They need to, you know, find that new kind of energy connected to the brand. Um, it's okay for them to be very tailored and specific, right? I just don't think the price we're going to pay in three years' time if we're very specific and tailored to each market in a hyper growth phase is too too big. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. 
because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Now, if I came in and looked at your calendar for, I don't know, a month or two or three, what insights would I have about how you spend your time? I know you're a curious person, you're a product-oriented person, but what insights would I have about what you value by looking at your diary? Um, I mean, I, I value... <laughs> What I've tried to do in the last year, I would say, is to be more relentless on how I structure my calendar. Um, so I think one of the, I hope you would see this insight that I, I structure my day, my days quite um, according to a pattern where I, in the morning, try to focus a lot on deep work. So I don't interact with people. I do the things I need to do for myself in the morning, right? Try to be as creative as possible. After that, I usually work with teams on problem solving. My, my brain is still, you know, energized. I still have that creativity. I work on problem solving. After lunch, I work on guiding teams. So they come to me with their, you know, problems, often solutions, and I try to guide them. And at the end of the day, I do the admin work because I'm, I'm probably, I've ran out of creativity. Mm. The, the hours between four and seven, you know, or four and 6 p.m. aren't my, you know, aren't my proudest moments. I'll just sit and do the admin stuff. So, so that's the thing that I've been trying to put into my calendar where I really, you know, try to get the most out of the hours when I wake up, do the deep work, do the thinking, the strategic part, go into problem solving mode while I'm still fresh before lunch, then go into mentoring and then, you know, um, do the admin part um, in, in the late afternoon. I also think um, an insight or a revelation to me has been how much time you need to spend on aligning. And I do think that um, you know, one of the biggest issues with big companies where, where the bosses don't spend enough time aligning or don't take the, the, the time aligning is that you know, the CMO feels that something is really important. The CMO tells their direct report that, hey, we need to solve this. This is really important. That person gets stressed, tells someone on their team, like, hey, we need to solve this. This is really important. Two steps down, that really, really important thing for the CMO that, the, like, actually, the CMO is the only person who could have solved it. He should just sit his or her ass down and solve it, has outsourced this four or five steps down in the organization. So someone fairly junior is now stuck with a problem that is super complex to solve because everyone has so smacked calendars, so they outsource every single big problem they have. I do not want to be that CMO. So I'm fairly strict on like, is this a problem that I even can outsource, even if it's only one step, right? Because I, I've seen so many peers, they have, you know, their calendars are so tight, they outsource their 10 biggest problems and, you know, big problems get solved by junior people. And I don't think that's fair. So what you would notice, the second insight could be that, hey, you seem to be spending a lot of time working on stuff yourself and being relentless on saying, hey, guys, I can email my direct report saying, hey, guys, you won't hear from me Wednesday, Thursday, Friday this week because I need to crack this. Like, we'll talk on Monday and then I'll sit and work. Not sure this is right. Again, I'm... No, no, it's good. Opinion. It's really good. How do you, how do you stay true to this framework you sort of have developed for yourself, quiet time in the morning, the deep thinking, and then you interact with your teams, you do some mentoring. I have always struggled with that. 
I kind of know how I should spend my time, but in every CMO's life, crap happens every day. And I think it's a daily challenge. Any tips you have of staying true to that? I mean, one very honest answer is that my assistant is absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even know how much she filters yeah. on my behalf, yeah. to be honest, right? She does a fantastic job with that. She is relentless. She also has no, like, I feel sorry canceling meetings last minute. Like, I don't like doing that, but she doesn't seem to care, which is fantastic, right? Yeah. <laughs> She's ruthless yeah. when it comes to that. And that is what I need. Sebastian, my boss, he sometimes said, that, hey, David, you know what? I usually apply management by let's see what happens, right? So he just doesn't reply to things. He doesn't attend to things. And then he sees like if it's in two, two or three weeks, if still, you know, if it's still important, if there's still panic, well, then it's probably important and he needs to attend to it. But usually like, let's see what happens. of the things they, you know, resolve themselves in a big organization where you have passionate people that really want to drive things forward, right? I'm lucky with that as well. And the third part is, and this might sound crazy, when I explain this to some of my peers, they think I'm crazy, but I've just stopped doing emails. I think it's an absolutely horrendous channel. Like I do it sometimes for reaching, like I do it once a month for reaching people outside of the organization. Otherwise we slack each other. And I always think to myself, like, if it's really important, they're going to get hold of me. If your only way to try to get hold of me is an email, you're either lazy and I don't want to talk to you or it's not important enough. Yeah. Things like that as well. Just trying to be slightly more binary in, in your things. Like, I don't do emails. Good for you. I do. I do a lot less than I used to do. No, it's, it's, yeah. a, good, it's a good practice. Yeah. I, I, someone once said to me, don't let your inbox control your outbox. And that's what happens with email. You end up being in reactive mode. You're not thinking, you're not being creative, you're not problem solving. Yeah, exactly. And I also think that you as a leader, are you're teaching your organization things with your behavior, right? So if you answer every email and attend to every meeting that you're being called, like, I'm not sure, but it feels like you are creating a lazy organization. You're creating an organization that is going to push problems to you because you seem to be answering emails you seem to be solving their problems you seem to be sitting on all the answers like why would they care they would just push things upwards forcing the organization in a friendly way to actually (laughs) do their job right and leading not by example but with these kind of things i think that's important i recently had two leaders from google on this podcast and they talked about everything starts with the product you've already talked about the product in this podcast, I've heard you say in other channels that everything starts with a really great product. I'd like to know how that influences how you spend your time and where you focus. Um, yeah, but I work a lot with the product because product at Klarna is broad. Like I also see marketing as a product. I've uh, applied a lot of product management principles to how we run projects, right? I used to be at an agency. I don't believe in those like, yeah, let the creative process happen. Just like, it doesn't work like that. You have to be relentless on creating a product. So at Klarna, I basically see everything as product, but that's probably not not your question, right? So to me, it just makes my life easier because my only mission is to, you know, present that product to the world, right? It's harder for me if I also had to sugarcoat that product or, you know, show people the outdoor pool. Um, So so to me, it's like I trust that the product is working. Um, I think it's nice. I I used to work a lot with uh, car um, with Volkswagen here in Europe. They're fairly big in, in the US as well. But they said we have such a good product. If you only get people to sit in the car 
and go for a test drive, it's a 50% chance that we're right. So your only job as an ad agency is to get people to try the car. And that to me is the same thing at Klarna. I know if I can get people to just try the product, sample the product, like we're good, we're golden. So, so that makes it easier. I'm confident that I have a product on the back end that works. Um, I also think that, you know, a lot of uh, agencies and branding people, they've, uh, they've drank in the Kool-Aid when it comes to what creates loyalty and what creates preference and those kind of things. Like I, I talked to some of my CMO peers and they're like, yeah, we need to do this preference campaign and create like, no, you don't, right? You need to get people to try the product. If they like it, they get preference. And, and that to me is the, the big thing. And, and I've said this before, and this is one of my big mantras, is that behavior creates attitude, not the other way around. Right. We do not create ads that people love and then they start loving the product. No, people start loving you know, the product and then they love the brand. And, and that is so important to me that, that everyone understands. Like, and that is why we don't do these big you know, preference. Kind of, like, it, it's when you don't have a good enough product. Like preference is truly created through the product. Say more about how you see everything in marketing as a product. No, it comes down to how you run processes. It comes down to how you hold yourself accountable to deliveries. It comes down to how you measure things, how you A-B test things. Like the world we live in is obviously easier because most of it is digital, right? 10 years ago, you had to put all your eggs in the TV commercial basket, right? You couldn't A-B test it. You could do some focus groups maybe, right? But seeing everything as a product that can be improved, that can be scaled. As I said before, I also have to think much more, you know, my line of work is not so much about creativity when it comes to marketing. It's so much more about system and structure. How do we scale this to 19 markets with translations, with, you know, changing colors on that or changing copy or if we update the price or you know that kind of to me it really is a product and and moving away from thinking that at least for global brands creativity is obviously a factor but the architecture and seeing you know the ecosystem that you need to create that that is the big thing like marketing is not a creative job anymore to some extent, people are going to hate mm -hmm. me for saying this and say I'm wrong. But still, I, I think it's not creative as people think it would be. It is about understanding the systematics, um, understanding. And also, there's, you know, there's not much marketing without conversion and systems and databases and CRM connected to it. So to me, just seeing it as a product makes it much easier. Like it is a product that you should you launch it. It's a product that you're nurturing, you're improving it. You follow processes. You have um, also the rituals connected to a product. Those are really important to us. You know, having, you know, Monday startup meetings, having daily standups, having Friday retros, having demo sessions, like demoing where you are, yeah. like forcing a product team to demo what they have ongoing creates a lot of good anxiety, right? You don't want to demo something that's shit. But if you try to force two creatives to demo something, they're going to be like, oh no, this, and oh no, that, the demo, 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 demo. And if you start applying those principles to marketing, magic happens. David, I've also heard you say you're a big believer in PR-driven marketing. 
What do you mean by that? As I said, I don't think people like advertising. I think that people like advertising a couple of times per year, maybe during the Super Bowl because it's a it is a ritual, right? But but if you look at you know what drives pop culture forward, if you look at what drives social forward, if you look at what drives conversation forward, it's not really advertising anymore. It used to be. You know, advertising used to be a conversation like, have you seen this new ad for this or that? It's not anymore. Like other things push it forward. And I do think to me, it's not about like it's cheesy to say I do believe in PR driven campaigns. To me, PR is some kind of symbol for is it worth talking about? Is it worth writing about? Is it worth giving up space in a newspaper or news outlet or at a publisher to do an article about? Well, then we're probably on to something, right? So starting with that angle, like what in all of this is worth talking about? Like, and I, I, I do believe that starts in the product as well, right? If you start, you know, with a PR agency asking, hey, we have this product, how do we PR angle it? Like it's already too late. It starts in the product. Like, what is worth talking about when it comes to this? It's, it, it, I hate myself for referencing Tesla in this, but he, he is a genius at doing that, building those talking points into the product itself, making life easier for everyone down the line uh, or, you know, down the funnel, right? But the, to me, maybe I was sloppy when I talked about PR driven campaigns. To me, it's like, have we created something, a product, a campaign, an initiative? that is worth talking and writing about? That to me is the question. You spoke a few moments ago about the importance of brand and the difficulty in having competitive moats these days, things move so quickly. Your space, since you've been in it, has gotten more crowded and we have big players coming in, very big players. Could you speak a bit how you are differentiating yourself even more and more and how you will, how you will continue to stand out with a very, very clear personality, identity, reputation, any learning you've had as you had to continue to evolve your brand? Oh, yeah, many learnings, right? But, but I do think uh, one of the biggest things is to not follow the playbook of the category that you're in. We talked about that slightly before already, mm -hmm. but, but I do think that most of our competitors follow some kind of recipe, right? And not doing that, not taking not accepting the fact that you're a fintech, but rather like, okay, what happened if we would see ourselves as a fashion company or a social media company or a retailer or, you know, you, you name it, right? That to me, that to me is something that we really need to do in order to continuously connect with people. Because again, coming back to the fact, I don't think that people want to connect with financial institutions per se. So, Sometimes I think I've talked about this before, but sometimes I talk internally about the fun thing with the, you know, sometimes you see a chihuahua attacking a big dog and it's, it's because the chihuahua doesn't know it's a chihuahua. I, I think that's interesting. It doesn't know it's in a small body. And sometimes that's a blessing, right? Sometimes things go really badly, obviously, but just do, do not accept who you are. Like if Gucci launched a payment service, like what would that be like? Okay, can we replicate that? Is there, are there any dynamics there? Can we find partnerships or cross-reference those kind of things? That's one thing. The other thing that is closely related to, if we stick to the brand, like another mode is obviously our distribution, our product, our ubiquity and stuff like that. But I do think um, our ability to combine previously forbidden things or, you know, the, the forbidden combinations, right? Before we 
came into the industry, design and financial institutions were a complete no-no, right? Why would you be beautiful when you're a financial company? You don't need to be beautiful. You only need this or that. And also like, can you, can you handle people's money and be funny and witty at the same time? Or are you a clown, right? Those kind of combinations where you see that. And, and I think that's inspired by other things. Like 20 years ago, luxury brands would never look at streetwear. Right? It was something completely different. Now you see the forbidden combination of streetwear and luxury, obviously, since a couple of years back. Right, You see those kind of, wow, what happens if you take the best of that world and the best of that world and combine it? And those are the kind of things we're continuously looking for in the brand to stay fresh and, and up to date. DE&I, right? diversity, equity, inclusion, is on everyone's mind in your job as a CMO. We've done a mini series about that on this podcast. You have an incredibly diverse company. I think something like 100 nationalities, probably probably even more at this point. What have you learned about building an organization like this with this rich diversity? What could others learn from your experience at Klarna? I think the top line uh, is that, or the bottom line is that it's much, much harder, much, much cumbersome, but also at the end of the day, much more rewarding and, you know, efficient, right? Sometimes I see Klarna as a society. We're only 7,000 people, so it's a small mm-hmm. society, right? Either you have these diverse societies with people from different nationalities, but in that you see creativity and innovation booming, you see different kind of restaurants popping up, right? You see that crossbreeding of different things. If you look in history, like very few inventions have come from homogenous societies, driving the same cars, laughing at the same jokes, wearing the same clothes. There's no innovation there. It's an echo chamber in a societal perspective, but it's much easier, easier, but more boring. I do think the same thing goes for companies and teams, right? The more diverse, the more difficult it is. Like people don't instinctively understand each other. There are cultural clashes. There are, you know, different views of the world. Like our engineers and our affiliate managers are fairly, you know, I'm not saying they're from different planets, but as close to as possible, right? But once you spend enough time of building that strong team, these different experiences start to to cross pollinate. And I like, yeah, maybe this is cheesy as well, but I do think, you know, the clearer you can see a problem, the easier you can find a solution. Like that, that to me is a, you know, that that is, to me is a truth. And the best way to see a problem clearly is to look at it from different angles. You have to look at it from a marketing angle, from a product angle, from a legal angle, from an analytics angle, or from a Swedish, German, Japanese, US, whatever angle. Like the more angles you you have on a problem, the clearer it gets. And as we know from the advertising industry and from the marketing industry, if you have a clear problem, you have a clear brief. And when you have a clear brief, the solution sometimes writes, writes itself. So, so to me again, but it, we've had to invest so much time in, you know, upfront and team building and understanding each other and, you know, writing down principles, um, all of that. Let's move to the last section of this podcast, which we call the creative brief. And my first question is, I've noticed since you left DDB in 2016, you've become a partner or investor in a variety of companies, an underwear brand, a health media company, a PR and communications agency. Why are you doing this? Is there a red thread or are these industries that are interesting to you? Are these, are these friends that are doing something interesting? 
what has mo- what has driven your investment and your interest? It is all of the above, right? But but one again, coming back to what I said j- just a moment ago about seeing a problem and from many different perspectives, it adds perspectives, right? The reason I spend hours and hours a day on Reddit and Twitter and is to get perspectives on things, right? It's when you you end up in an echo chamber, then then you're in trouble, especially as a marketeer, especially as a global marketeer that wants to read a, reach a broad audience. I think the same thing goes for for business and creativity. I do not want to end up in a spot where I'm only good at Klarna. And, and that's for Klarna's sake as well. Mm-hmm. I need like what's happening in health tech, what's happening in retail and DTC and on, online commerce, like what's happening in the agency world. Um, again, some of these are my friends. Some of them are just like interesting opportunities that I've come across. But, but I do think it's healthy for everyone to have some things on the sideline that actually give you inspiration, you know, new perspectives and, and challenge you in a different way. Who has been the greatest inspiration in your life? Probably a couple of my teachers during school. Um, I'm probably bad with individual inspiration because I, I don't like idolizing people. I like to, you know, puzzle together my own truth from a lot of different thinkers. Um, but I do think teachers play a profound role in people's lives. Um, both at a younger age, obviously, but also at an older university age. So, so a couple of my teachers have been true inspirations because knowledge is knowledge is cool, in my opinion. We've talked about creativity a couple of times in the last hour. How do you keep yourself creative? I know you spend personal time in the mornings before work starts. You, you're on Reddit, you're on Twitter. Is there anything else you do to be sure that you stay really on top of your game creatively? I don't know. I, I believe in these theories around, maybe they're not theories, but around the alpha waves, right? When you force yourself to be creative, you can't. And when you go for a walk in the forest, all of a sudden you, you, you get all of these ideas and you should have brought your notepad. Um, so I do think like exercise is important. Spending time with family is important. Spending alone time with no you know tech around you, so camping outside, those kind of things. Because I do think the input comes from you know all the reading, all the redditing, all the talking to people. I love that kind of stuff. Like sometimes I maybe this is slightly off topic, but sometimes I go and sit myself down downtown on a bench, and I just watch the people pass by, and I ask myself like, does that person like Klarna? Does that person like our latest campaign? Mm-hmm. Why? Why not? Like try, trying to really. You know, be close to that. And sometimes I ask people, like, have you seen our stuff? Are you using our app? What do you think about it? Why do you like PayPal more or less? Like those kind of things. Getting that input. Um, and then the output is by not trying to be creative. Who would you like to hear in the CMO podcast? What, what guest would be inter- interesting for you? I don't know. I, I always like people. I don't have a good name for you, but I do think uh, CMOs who are in, you know, dilemmas or big decisions. So, so we obviously have a huge crisis going on in the world right now, but also, you know, brands that were sponsoring the China Winter Olympics, like but the, the, the ethical and moral dilemma that might or might not, maybe I'm off here, but, but might or might not be connected to a big choice like that. Like, what's the thinking around that? Like, how do you think about marketing from that moral brand building ethical perspective right and we see more and more of that but also brands that you know because it's hard in times like these to have be be a political brand like to some extent everyone has to have a political opinion even you know even doritos 
like they, they do chips, right? they, they do nachos, and still they need to have a political opinion. It's interesting, but in the polarized world, like how do you navigate that as a brand? You know, left, right, big, small, vax, no vax, all of that, right? Because those decisions are tough, right? What kind of producer you choose for your next TVC, or if you go for Google AdWords or Apple Ads, uh, those things aren't hard. That that's just a decision. But when it comes to these bigger moral topics where it's like how do we behave in tricky situations sorry for going on a rant but that but that would be interesting no no it's 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 a great it's a great area and if we had another hour we could talk about that probably for an hour but uh, but i love this thought about who's I, I try to do this with our guest who's in the middle of a big mm-hmm. transformation a big decision a big dilemma that's always interesting and i also like to understand what dilemmas people have had in their life getting to the point where they are. That's why I ask a lot about career paths. I think that often leads to good places. David, this has been marvelous. Thank you for staying up late in Stockholm as I'm in California. It was uh, just a wonderfully rich conversation. And congratulations to you and Sebastian and the whole team on this fabulous, inspirational, successful brand that is not complacent. If there's one lesson from the last hour, this is not a complacent place. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with David Sandstrom. Three takeaways from this one for your business and life. The first takeaway from this discussion, it's a simple one, the importance of courage and bravery in leadership. The reason this company is so successful is because they are willing to take chances, willing to take risks, and they have a clear enemy in their eyes, and that is the traditional banking and credit card industry. They are zigging when they zag. They are building a very differentiated experience and a very differentiated brand. The second takeaway, doing marketing that is worth talking about. David said his standard for marketing is that when they do an initiative, a campaign, a product launch, that people are drawn to it, that people want to talk about it, then in many ways, it's earned media versus purchase media. The third takeaway, how to spend your time as a CMO. This guy is extremely structured and disciplined about his calendar, where his focus is, and where he wants to make an impact. His assistant is very helpful to him for that, but this was a masterclass in how to focus to make the biggest impact as a CMO. And I would say a bonus takeaway, number four, this was a great discussion on diversity, equity, and inclusion. David spoke about as well as I've heard about the real power of a diverse organization in helping you be a better company, better problem solvers. There's tremendous richness in a diversity of opinions and ways to look at a situation or a problem. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, Leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.